Welcome to Courts and Capital. I'm your host, Malcolm McLaughlin. In recent years, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, along with several cities and counties, have squared off numerous times in court with an obscure group fighting for the civil rights of sex offenders. The interesting part of this story is that the group representing sex offenders keeps winning. That organization is the Alliance for Constitutional Sex Offense Laws, led by attorney Janice Bellucci. Bellucci has sued the Department of Corrections for barring sex offenders from early release under Proposition 57. She's sued cities and counties over residency restrictions and even over voting rights. She sued school districts for illegally barring sex offenders from campuses attended by their own children. Bellucci has compared the work to an endless game of whack-a-mole, sometimes bringing cases that both sides appear to know that she will win. In the process, she's become so specialized that she's become a kind of generalist, forced to become conversant in a wide variety of state laws. Janice Bellucci will join us today to talk about the often controversial and sometimes thankless work that she does. Also, a quick reminder that this podcast is available on iTunes and iOS devices through the feed of our parent program, The Weekly Appellate Report. You can also find us on the dailyjournal.com website. While there, you can take a short true-false test and earn one hour of California CLE credit. This podcast is produced out of the Sacramento Bureau of the Daily Journal with technical help from our very own Nicholas Perez. Janice Bellucci, welcome to Courts and Capital. Thank you. So I really wanted to, to talk to you and um, about the work that you do because I think, for one thing, I believe the work you do is widely misunderstood. So uh, tell me a little bit about the Alliance for Constitutional Sex Offense Laws, some of the cases you have done, and uh, yeah, and maybe just some things about your work that might surprise some people. Well, sure. As far as I know, I'm the only attorney in the state of California whose practice is uh, completely <laughs> focused upon working and representing people who've been convicted of sex offenses. And I say that because there are other people out there who take an occasional case, but quite frankly, it's become my, my only legal cases and also the legislative work that I do. So um, I came to do this because of a book I read and uh, a movie I watched a long time ago. So the movie was To Kill a Mockingbird, and um, the work that I'm doing uh, is based upon a book called We're All in This Together. And the book was written by somebody who was on the sex offender registry. I didn't even know it when I picked up the book, quite frankly. But when I read it, I thought there's something very wrong with our system today and something that needs to be addressed by someone. At the time, I didn't know it was going to be me. I thought surely there was somebody else out there doing it. And so what time frame are we talking about? About seven years ago. Oh, okay. So this is relatively recent in, in your career. Yes. Um, I haven't been a civil rights attorney my entire career. In fact, I spent almost 30 years as an aerospace attorney. So um, I've worked for NASA, I've worked for the Air Force, I've worked for Congress. And now I'm working on behalf of people convicted of sex offenses. So very, <laughs> very different work. Well, there have certainly been some uh, past members of Congress convicted of sex offenses. So. Yes, there have been, <laughs> as well as members of our state legislature. So once I started thinking about what is and isn't going on, what I realized is that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. So in other words, and by the way, I don't have any problem with, and the organization doesn't have any problem with, people being convicted of sex offenses. We believe in the legal process, and if somebody committed a sex offense and they're convicted of a sex offense, so be it. And if they're properly sentenced, that's great too. 
But what's happening is the collateral consequences after a conviction and after somebody serves a either jail time or prison sentence. Um, and that's where the disconnect is. So that people who were convicted of a sex offense, possibly even 50 years ago, are still being punished for what they did 50 years ago. And we have different parts of our society, our, po our population, that are being inordinately um, affected by this. The gay community is one of them. So most people probably don't realize that the sex offense registry started out basically focused on gay men in Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles. And then what's happened is that the sex offender registry has expanded both geographically as well as the offenses. So now we're talking about almost a hundred offenses. If you are convicted of any of those offenses, that triggers the requirement for you to register and in California unfortunately it's for the rest of your life. And it's for the rest of your life no matter what the actual offense you committed because uh, under the uh, umbrella term sex offender there's a huge variety of people in terms of the seriousness of the offense, how many offenses they committed and when they committed them. Correct. And I think that's something a lot of people don't realize, so that you have a very disparate community here, and you may in fact have somebody who was convicted of public indecency because he is a senior citizen who couldn't make it up Interstate 5 without stopping on the side of the road to relieve himself. That is public indecency, and that could trigger the requirement to register as a sex offender. Or you have somebody who's been, you know, committed um, several violent rapes. They're all sex offenders, and they're all required to register for the rest of their lives. Well, and talk about that early registry of gay men in Los Angeles, uh, what they were being convicted and registered for, and how that kind of led into the, the current registry that we have. Sure. Well... Any man that basically touched another man could be convicted of a sex offense back in 1947 when the sex offender registry started in California. And by the way, we have the distinct discredit of having started the sex offender registry. So we're the first state to have one. And it's something that unfortunately caught on in other states and it just keeps building upon itself. And uh, so we've had a registry in California now for more than 70 years. Wow. And like I mentioned, is there maybe another fact or two about the sex offender population in California? Are maybe some of the laws that govern sex offenders are the legal rights they have that might surprise people? Sure. I mean, uh, at this point in time, for example, somebody who's on the sex offender registry cannot qualify to live in Section 8 housing. So if you have a poor person who happens to be on the sex offender registry for whatever reason in the state of California, that person cannot live in Section 8 housing. So that has, in fact, increased the homelessness rate here in California, people who are on the sex offender registry. And, and by the way, that's a federal law. It's not a state law. And what the federal law says is if you are on a sex offender registry for life, you don't qualify. So in other states that have tiered registries already, there are many people on their sex offender registries who would in fact qualify for Section 8 housing. Okay, well I, that, actually that leads us into SB 384, the Senator Scott Weiner bill that creates a tiered registry in California for the first time. Tell me a little bit about the fight to pass that bill and what it actually does compared to what we have had in the past. Well, it's a huge change. As I said, since 1947, we've had a sex offender registry, and it's always been a lifetime registry. So for virtually all, and if you want to talk about 
a few exceptions, I'm happy to do that. But as far as the tiered registry law, we worked on support of a tiered registry law for six and a half years before this one passed and was signed by the governor. It's not a perfect law. We didn't get everything we wanted, but I guess that's the art of compromise. And uh, what it would do, though, for the first time, when it goes into effect, which is not until 2021, so we still have three more years to wait, but when it goes into effect, it'll actually distinguish between and among sex offenses. So, for example, the person that I mentioned who might relieve himself on the side of Interstate 5, that person would be probably in tier one. It's probably a misdemeanor offense, and that person will be in tier one. And the, the tiers are rising, so th- two and three are more serious. That is correct. So it, somebody on tier one would have to register for at least 10 years, tier two at least 20 years, and tier three would remain a lifetime requirement. So in that respect, things will change, hopefully, in 2021. We're uh, So we'll see if there are any further changes to this legislation next year. We're expecting um, there to be some discussion about next year. And, and I mean, and so who goes into tier two and tier three mm-hmm. in that system? Okay, so tier one is basically anybody who's been convicted of a misdemeanor offense, and there are a few minor felonies that fall in that category as well. Tier two would be like a hands-on offense, right? Somebody where there's some actual phys- physical touching. something with a victim. Yes, with the, with a victim or a, a real victim, as opposed to an online victim who doesn't really exist. And then tier three, it's mostly the violent offenses, including, you know, uh, rape. But uh, unfortunately, one of the big categories that got captured in tier three right now is anybody convicted of an offense involving child pornography. So the reason I say it that way is even possessing a photograph of someone who might be a teenager, a nude photo of a teenager not engaged in a sex act, that that, in fact, constitutes child pornography right now. I mean, this, this is some of the sexting stuff between teenagers that we've heard about. It certainly includes that. And so, you know, there is a, a 16-year-old girl, at least she was 16 at the time, who took nude selfies and sent them to some boys in her high school, and she was convicted of uh, creating and distributing child pornography. Of herself. Of herself. And that the boys that she sent them to, well, they were then, uh, I don't know how many of them did get convicted, but they could have been convicted of possessing child pornography. Even if they had erased, immediately erased the photos? Yes. Unfortunately, these days, and I'm not a computer expert, but it's my understanding that no erasure is permanent or complete. Mm-hmm. And that people can come back in and look at even, I guess, things like Snapchat, which is a photograph that shows up and then it disappears. But those, can, in fact, can be found later. But you can be convicted of a crime if somebody sends you a nude photo against your will? Yes. You don't have to request it. So it's a strict liability offense. And a lot of people who've been caught up in this too, what they were uh, involved in some kind of peer-to-peer sharing of files, of photos, for example, and maybe they started looking at adult pornography, but in order to access the adult pornography, which is legal, um, the fact is that they opened up their computer and that people could send them files rather regardless of whether or not they requested them. So in some cases, not in every case, that people did not request a file of a nude 17-year-old, but it was sent to them, and then sure enough, it turned out to be child pornography. Yikes. So, I mean, one thing you're saying is the laws themselves are not really caught up with technology. They are not. And there really needs to be a change in the law and to distinguish between and among what is child pornography. So right now, even, and this was outside the state of California, that somebody who had some images, they were cartoon images, so these were not real people, Mm -hmm. but 
and I believe it was the Simpson children that engaged in sexual acts and however that came about that that person there have been people convicted of possessing that as well so we're not even talking about real people right well and there was the very famous uh what Wee herman uh paul rubens case where uh he got dinged for child pornography that was like vintage of i guess sort of teen models who are now dead of old age because the stuff was from like the early 1900s. It, it makes no difference. The, right. time, the timing of it doesn't make any difference. The age of it. By the way, it doesn't make any difference the age of the possessor. So we have a lot of teens today who are curious about sex and they go to the internet to find out more about it because that's where they find more about any subject. They go to the internet and they're looking at pictures of people their own age nude and uh, that's considered child pornography so if you have a 15 year old looking at a picture of a 15 year old the 15 year old who's looking at that photograph is possessing child pornography okay so um i mean do you have are there proposals out there for what to do about some of the technology related issues that you've brought up you know i'm not aware of any of them but uh, i'd sure be happy to support something like that Okay, one of the big things that you have had going on in recent months is litigation with the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation over Proposition 57 and uh, efforts by CDCR to bar sex offenders from early release under Proposition 57. Tell me about that litigation. Sure. The fact is when we see a mistake that government makes that adversely affects our community, then we pursue litigation. And that's exactly what happened with Proposition 57. So Proposition 57 in and of itself did not exclude sex offenders from the benefits of that proposition. But lo and behold, when CDCR issued regulations implementing that law, they created an an exception. And uh, it's basic 101 administrative law that you cannot do that. So um, that's why we filed the first lawsuit. Fortunately, uh, Judge Sumner agreed with us. And, and then, lo and behold, CDCR appealed the case. So, uh, but we, and then they issued final regulations because those were the emergency regulations. And then we, when they issued the final regulations, they made the same mistake. So we have filed a second lawsuit that was filed on June 26th. Okay, and so and specifically, they barred also anybody convicted of a sex offense from early release. Yes, and the really the really difficult part of this is they said anybody who had ever been convicted of a sex offense. So that, for example, there were people in prison. There are people in prison right now for a DUI, and they may have been convicted of a sex offense thirty years ago. But because they were convicted of a sex offense 30 years ago, they are now being denied the benefits of Proposition 57. And how many people are we talking about, Ballpark? I believe uh, we're probably talking about probably at least 10,000 people in prison. Who, who might may be eligible if you get ultimately get a ruling. Correct. And, and, and are able to sort of force a court order or something that will actually force CDCR to follow the case. Assuming CDCR does not win on appeal. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is one of one of the things that really interests me about your career is that you have become so specific that it's turned you into a generalist. So in this Prop 57 case, you're kind of an election lawyer. And um, so I mean, the big contention between you guys and CDCR is about voter intent. And your argument is basically that voter intent is the language of what voters voted for. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> it, seems, it seems so simple. 
Well, and I mean, and I know that that on at least one or more occasions, uh, CDCR has claimed that they are complying with voter intent and voters wanted to keep uh, sex offenders in. I'm not sure if I quite understand the argument, but it is it is mm-hmm. something they've put forward. Well, in the proposition itself, it basically said anyone who had been convicted of a non-violent felony mm-hmm. would be benefiting from Proposition 57. Unfortunately, the proposition did not define the term non-violent. One quick note, Janice Bellucci referenced a bill that failed this year that would have changed the state's definition of a violent felony. That bill was SB 976. But California law does. California law does, and we think it's very clear that you basically take those provisions and you look at the sex offenses, and some sex offenses, by the way, are considered violent felonies, but not all of them. There are only nine uh, sex offenses on the list of violent felonies. So our position is that anything not listed on the as a violent felony and a sex offense would, in fact, be able to benefit from Proposition 57. The, again, the judge agreed with us in our uh, case uh, challenging the emergency regulations, and hopefully that will prevail on appeal and or our second lawsuit here with regard to the final regulations. Okay, well, and there's actually um, a, a proposed ballot initiative that, among other things, would change some of the definitions for, for violent crimes. Would that retroactively affect this issue if, were it, if it were to pass? I don't know if it's if it's meant to be retroactive or not, but the fact is it's not going to be on the ballot until 2020, so okay. we have some time to deal with that and perhaps even the authors and see if we can get some clarifications. Well, and there's also been talks about in the legislature about changing, updating some of those definitions as well, which might take care of some of the, uh, the opposition and public outcry. Sure. I mean, there was, in fact, legislation introduced this year that would have changed the definition of what a violent felony is, and it was defeated. And I believe that's been done probably every session of the legislature and uh, with mixed results. Do you know the bill number on that? I do not. Okay. Well, and, and, and another area where um, you got involved with election law had to do with the city of Coalinga and the Pleasant Valley State Hospital in prison there. Tell me about that case and about the very interesting status of the sex offenders being held specifically at the state hospital. Surely. Well, it started about 10 years ago when the city of Colinga decided to annex Colinga State Hospital into their city. And by the way, there's a seven-mile break between the city and the state hospital geographically, but they got special permission from the legislature to do that. And um, after annexing the hospital, there are patients at Colinga State Hospital, and many of them, in fact, anybody who's not on parole, in fact, qualifies and is eligible to vote. So some of those patients went to the trouble of registering to vote and, and have been voting for about 10 years. But what happened in November of 2017 was that the city of Colinga attempted to pass a sales tax increase for the city. If that sales tax increase had passed, the patients at Colinga State Hospital would be paying additional sales tax for items that they buy at the state hospital. They have something like a convenience store. Mm-hmm. Um, a me, little grill. Right. Yeah. They do not get outside of the hospital. But the, but the goods that are sold at the hospital, they have to pay the city sales tax. So they were directly affected on that. Um, the fact is that the patients at Colinga tried to um, engage with the city um, 
mayor, the mayor and some uh, city council members to try to get their point of view that if we're going to approve this and we want something in return. What everybody does when there's a sales tax increase at issue, I believe. So, and a city said, no, we're, we're not going to talk to you. And so th what happened is within the hospital, there actually was uh, a campaign to defeat the sales tax increase. And they were successful in doing that. So lo and behold, the election was held in November 2017. It failed, the sales tax increase failed. And the city said, oh my goodness, we're gonna have to lay people off. Um, by the way, the city has other financial woes as well. It's not all related to this the sales tax increase. And what they did then after the fact was they went and filed a lawsuit in Superior Court, basically challenging the votes cast by the patients at Colinka State Hospital and saying that instead of voting for the city of Kalinga elections, which they've been doing successfully for 10 years approximately, um, that they should be voting instead where they, in the jurisdiction where they came from, which makes no sense because many of them have been incarcerated either in prison or in the state hospital for 20 or more years. Well, and, I mean, and one thing I want to clarify about why they are A, incarcerated, but B, can vote is that they have served prison, I just want to really clarify this for the, they've served prison terms, they're no longer held under criminal detention, but they're deemed too violent to release, so they're held under civil detention. Correct. Is that, that's correct. That is correct. Is that a common thing around the, a common system around the country that they're, you're able to hold people on, on civil detention, but they still regain rights? This process that you just described is called civil commitment. Mm -hmm. So there are civil commitment going on, procedures and processes going on, about half of our states in the country. And whether or not they get to vote is depending upon the, the, the state. But under California law, they clearly can. Absolutely. Under California law, they're eligible to vote in elections. And again, because the city annexed the hospital, they were eligible to vote in the city elections, but then the city didn't like this outcome, so they basically sued Fresno County. So the city of Colinga sued Fresno County, basically saying that the county should never have given the patients the ballots in the first place. Right. Well, and courts do not tend to look very kindly on lawsuits that are filed specifically over the results of an election rather than the, um, you know, it, it, the time to challenge them was 10 years ago. Yeah, you are <laughs> correct. And the fact is that uh, the, the city lost the lawsuit. And talk a little bit about the subsequent bill that the city attempted and their local assemblymen carried and they brought into the elections committee a few weeks back. Sure. So Assembly Bill 2839 basically would have required the patients at Colinga to vote where they used to live before they were inca incarcerated and or institutionalized, which makes no sense because many of them have been there for 20 years or more and they have absolutely no ties to those communities anymore. And many of them aren't going anywhere anytime soon. That's a very good point. Um, the fact is that the patients at Colinga, most of them will die there. They will never be released. Right. And I mean, one, one really interesting thing that happened in the committee is um, uh, several legislators, several assembly members asked them why they just, just didn't just unannex the, uh, the, the state hospital. The reason the city of Colinga annexed the hospital is that they, in fact, get government benefits. It increased the population mm -hmm. of the city. So you have about 1,300 people in the hospital, and I believe the population of the city is about 20,000. So they got a hefty increase there in their population, and uh, that made them eligible for, I've been told, for things like block grants that they weren't otherwise eligible for. 
And so they were basically reaping the benefits of having the hospital annex for at least 10 years. And here came something where the patients voted to them the wrong way and they wanted to erase their votes. Well, and um, I mean, there, there is a long tradition of rural communities trying to capitalize on prisons while avoiding what they see as negative consequences of having those prisoner populations. And uh, so um, another uh, area of law that you have gotten into through your work with the Alliance for Constitutional Sex Offense Laws has to do with residency restrictions and the a fairly complex body of law that actually applies to that and about when lo- local cities can and really under the current regime cannot. So this was implicated in a lawsuit involving the city of Maywood and Proposition 83. Tell me about that. Surely. When the residency restrictions came about because of Jessica's law, Proposition 83. And by the way, prior to that, our state legislature refused to pass residency Well, and, t- and tell us what year was Jessica's law in California and what does Je- did Jessica's law say? And this is the very basic. Yeah. So Jessica's law basically says that people convicted of sex offenses cannot live within 2,000 feet of a school or park. That's what it said. And then, it, and then it said that local governments could pass their own residency restrictions involving sex offenders which some cities and counties saw as a blank check. And so they, many of them rushed out and started passing residency restrictions. And part of it, quite frankly, is that one city saw that their neighboring city passed residency restrictions and thought, oh my goodness, if we don't pass residency restrictions, the, the sex offenders in that city are going to move to our city. Well, so, and the voters will toss us out in the next election. Yes, and then that, there's That plays that. into a lot of these that... <laughs> Well, there's actually a question that I'll get to after this, yeah. Okay. So, so what, what, and there was a, a huge um, ambiguity in Jessica's law as a ballot proposition in that it said, when it came to local governments, it said any sex offender. So some cities and counties interpreted that quite literally when they shouldn't have because Jessica's law actually was uh, an amendment to Penal Code Section 3003.5, which is very specific to sex offenders while on parole. It didn't say everybody on the sex offender registry. It said sex offenders on parole. So what happened is most of the cities and counties that passed residency restrictions said it applied to all sex offenders. And so we have had some recent uh, successes here in getting that limited to people sex offenders while they're on parole. And by the way, most people who are convicted of a sex offense spend five years or less on parole. So, you know, if you consider maybe they were convicted when they were 20 years old, well, that means that by the time, you know, they do their jail time or prison time and stuff, by the time they're 30, they don't have to worry about residency restrictions anymore. And residency restrictions in and of themselves cause terrible problems within families because many times when somebody's convicted of any offense, including a sex offense, they don't have a lot of resources when they get out of jail or prison. So they're looking to their family. Hey, do you have a spare room? I can you know, live in your spare room. Or how about a husband who's married and can't live with his wife and children because the house that he owns is mm-hmm. too close to a school or a park. That may have opened since, he, since the house was purchased. 
that's a possibility. Uh, child care centers are even more problematic. Mm -hmm. So Jessica's law itself does not address child care centers, but unfortunately many of the laws or ordinances adopted by the cities and counties, they added child care centers. And child care centers pop up like mushrooms and then they disappear. Mm -hmm. and, and so some of these ordinances had grandfather clauses, which protected a person on the registry from that happening, but many of them did not. Right. Well, and I mean, and, and you've been involved, the, these residency restriction lawsuits, you've been involved in some huge number of those. Was it like 39 or some? Only 31. 31, sorry. <laughs> we filed 31 lawsuits so far. Um, but the fact is we have a list of 19 more possible lawsuits. And they're mostly cities, but there are a few counties that are thrown in. Okay. Well, and in many of these cases, when you mentioned something that was interesting where you would actually have sort of pre-litigation or pre-trial interactions with, say, city council members or their lawyers or so forth. And they would essentially say, yeah, we'll probably lose, but we're going to make you go through the process of suing us. I have been told by city attorneys that they're, they cannot repeal their res residency restrictions unless they get sued. And so we, that sounds like an invitation to us, and we sue them. The uh, political price is just too high. Correct. And it compares to another series of lawsuits we filed that had to do with presence restrictions. So presence restrictions was where somebody who was convicted of a sex offense could visit. Like, could you visit the park? Could you go to the ocean in Orange County? The answer was no, by the way. Could you go to the dog park? Those kinds of things. We filed about the same number of lawsuits um, challenging presence restrictions, but there actually were more cities and counties that had presence restrictions. And what happened is we challenged those. And when cities saw that their neighboring cities were being sued, then they backed down and they repealed the presence restrictions. We're not having the same results here with residency restrictions. Mm. So there's, there, I guess they think the political price is too high, the city council members, and in fact we're going to have to be sued and in, in to change our mind. And you know what, the, the saddest thing about this is all the empirical evidence establishes that residency restrictions do not increase public safety. In fact, they do just the opposite. They decrease public safety. This is not Janice speaking. This is not the organization speaking. This is the California Sex Offender Management Board speaking. This is Dr. Jill Levinson speaking. There's all kinds of studies and reports out there that talk about the fact that because the homelessness rate of registrants increases dramatically when there are residency restrictions, that the community is actually less safe with residency restrictions, not more safe. Okay, and are there particular uh, court cases that come up a lot in uh, some of your cases? Okay. Precedents? Yes, there's a very unfortunate U.S. Supreme Court decision called Smith versus Doe, and in that decision, the court decided that being on the registry um, was not punishment. And because it's not punishment, then new laws could be passed and applied retroactively without the ex post facto clause being triggered. And what, what, what is the legal argument that it's not punishment? Well, in so that particular case focused on uh, sex offender laws in the state of Alaska mm -hmm. in the late 1990s. Okay, we're talking about Alaska. It's got a pretty sparse population. And at that point in time, if somebody had been convicted of a sex offense and was required to register, basically the state sent them a letter once a year. Mm -hmm. They signed the letter and they mailed it back. That was what registration encompassed in the state right. of Alaska in the 1990s. Since that time, 
many states have added and local governments as well have added restriction after restriction whether it's residency restrictions or presence restrictions or you can't walk onto a school campus even though you're and you have three children who are students there they keep adding these collateral consequences and because of smith versus doe they can in fact and are in fact being applied retroactively well actually that brings up um the lawsuit that you filed against the fontana unified school district over the rights of Parents who are, are sex offenders, you know, ha should have a specific right to come on that campus that is being attended by their child. Tell me about that case. Sure. Well, the what happened is Fontana Unified School District, during a school board meeting, uh, made a really unwise decision. And they did it because there were angry parents at that school board meeting. We have the video, so we watched this happen. And those parents threaten the members of the school board that they would basically not get reelected if they didn't do the following, which was to prohibit all sex offenders from coming onto any campus for any reason. So a total prohibition like that in this broad net, you're scooping up parents who are all of a sudden told that there's no way they can go onto a school campus to drop their child off, to pick up their child, to go to back to school night, there's a school play even graduation. And, and why is that not legal? Well, it's not legal because of the, um, uh, the 14th Amendment and uh, the right to fam familial association. And, and, and the other thing is, it just doesn't make common sense. I mean, and we, we were quoting the National Education Association in our lawsuits <laughs> and the national Co because the National Education Association basically says that children you know, do poorly when they're not supported by their parents. So you're basically, you know, creating an underclass of students right there. So if your parents can't come see you in the school play or at the track meet, you're, you as a student, you feel like your parents don't care, right? And so those children, and again, this is the National Association speaking, um, is just saying that those children make lower grades, they have, uh, they're less likely to go to college. There's all kinds of statistics out there. So you're, you're creating an underclass of, of students. Which is, I mean, which is not just social commentary. I mean, that actually, those factors implicate the 14th Amendment. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. So, you know, not, to, and by the way, there is a state law that says that registrants have the right to go on a campus provided that they get advanced written permission from the principal or whoever the principal delegates. But this took the a power away from the principal, too. The principal could not say, okay, yeah, sure, your child is graduating from high school and this is a really significant event. We're still not, we can't let you go to your child's graduation. Mm -hmm. right, so, so let's backtrack a little bit. Tell me, are there other, are there cases that you often cite in support of your position on, say, residency on voting rights? Um, and are, are they the rights, that, are, are they the cases, rather, that, you know, and somebody in a, a very different voting rights case, for instance, might cite? No, I don't think they're that much different, quite frankly. I know, for example, when we went back to the patients of Coalinga, we talked about the rights of, a, of somebody who's in the military and where they can vote. And there have been many cases on these points. You know, does a person in the military vote where they're currently stationed? And they might be stationed there for a few years, or do they have to vote back to where they came from before that? And so, basically, the cases have said that Oh, of course you can vote where you where you're currently stationed. 
Well, yeah, I mean, voting laws are, are, are mostly written to give people discretion about yes. as long as they're only voting in one place. Correct. Correct. And, and, and again, patients at Kalinga, they don't have any discretion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're going to be at Kalinga for a very long time. Right. And I'm serious in saying that most of them die there. Is there a specific voting rights case you often cite or a specific residency case? With regard to um, residency, we've actually had two um, positive decisions recently. One of them issued uh, by a federal judge, and that involved the city of Adelanto. And in that case, the judge uh, recognized the fact that uh, cities and counties were preempted by state law from applying their residency restrictions to registrants while they're on, to anybody who's not on parole. So in other words, it's okay to apply residency restrictions to sex offenders on parole, but not to anybody else. We also had that in the Maywood case recently, mm -hmm. and that came in the Norwalk Superior Court. Well, and you, you pursued a very interesting... Th th these are actually the cases that you referred to as the game of whack-a-mole, because there are so many of them, and they keep popping up, and you'll win one, but, you know, the others, you know, don't get... They don't drop the policies. Um, but you had a very specific strategy of getting a decision in federal court and state court. Tell me why you did that. Well, because, <laughs> well, it, it basically increases our firepower. And sometimes we file lawsuits in state court, though, quite frankly, I'd rather file a, um, a cases in federal court if possible. Why? Federal judges ha are much more independent, and uh, they don't have to worry about being reelected. A lifetime appointment. Correct. Yeah, well, and then there's another, uh, there's a piece of federal law, the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, that you have cited in uh, some of your uh, voting uh, voting restrictions cases. Um, I believe that's actually something that's often cited by Attorney General Javier Becerra when he sues the Trump administration. Uh, talk to me about uh, some of the times you may have cited that. Surely. And we, we have actually cited both the California Administrative Procedures Act and the Federal Administrative Procedures Act, depending on the case. But in, in both situations, when, when a law is passed and, and, uh, and signed by the governor, the fact is that there's always there's an agency that needs to implement that law. And there's a certain structure for the implementation, and that's the Administrative Procedures Act. And some people might find the APA boring, um, but the fact is that the purpose it serves primarily is to give the public a right to comment upon the regulations. And for example, in the Prop 57 uh, emergency regulations, if we had had an opportunity to comment upon them, we would have told them wrong, that exceeds the scope of the law, but we didn't have time. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when still with Prop 57, they did have hearings about their final regulations, and we testified, and many other people did too. I think there are about 100 people who testified in opposition to those final regulations. I think there may have been more. I was Might there for a, a big part of it. <laughs> well, I was the first person to testify, right? and then I had to get across town um, um, because of the tiered registry bill and go to the appropriations hearing, where it was killed, by the way. Uh, that day. Mm. So so anyway, Administrative Procedures Act, there's a formula that needs to be followed, and when the agencies fail to follow that formula, then in fact they should be challenged. Okay, and we've covered many of the different kinds of cases and areas of law where you are, you know, active residency law, elections law, even education code. 
What what would me might be a new area of litigation that you could see yourself getting involved in uh, down the road? The list is long, <laughs> and I'm just not going to take a quick peek here. Oh, this this is an interesting one that we actually did file just a, a short while ago. The registrar of voters in uh, Los Angeles County decided that they would not let anybody on the registry work as a poll worker. And that was very curious. And by the way, it was on their website and it was on their literature when they were trying to solicit people to be poll workers. And we understood that they were quite desperate for poll workers. As um, local elections officials always are. Yes. <laughs> and the, the fact is that they just... They just started, they just issued this blanket exception. So if anybody was convicted of any sex offense, no matter how long ago, that was it. And uh, we didn't think that was appropriate, so we sued them. And that one, that case has just started. I think I have a September 10 um, hearing in that case. But, I, you know, Malcolm, I'd like to go back to something. You, uh, you ask about a case that we cite a lot, and, and the case is called In Ray Taylor. And the In Ray Taylor was decided by the California Supreme Court in 2015. And, and the court said that it had, it's a residency restrictions lawsuit or case and and in it the state supreme court said that residency restrictions could not be applied in a blanket fashion to registrants now that was a case involving cdcr and parolees and when it first came out i remember headlines i don't think in your newspaper but in other newspapers that said the whole issue had been resolved forever and it turns out it's not true because we've been playing, as you said, the whack-a-mole game with these cities, and we've already sued 31, and we've got 19 more to go, possibly. So, what? So in in that case, the the state supreme court recognized that not everybody on the sex offender registry is the same. Okay, who poses a current danger and who doesn't? And CDCR actually expanded the decision because it could have been limited to only San Diego County that involved. But instead, CDCR said, you know what, we're going to apply this statewide. So my understanding right now is that you don't even get considered for residency restrictions when you're on parole from CDCR unless you're considered high risk. And then it's it, basically they're making a case-by-case -case determination. So CDCR, I believe, is doing a good job there. But others, these state governments, are not doing a good job because they say anybody ever convicted of a sex offense we don't care what that sex offense was. We don't care how long ago it was. We don't care if you've changed your entire life um, since then. Uh, we're going to tell you that you can't live in our town. And many of the residency restrictions have that effect. It's really banishment. And by the way, the, case, the Taylor case said, thou shalt not banish anybody. <laughs> um, and we were happy about that. And, you know, they talked about the fact that families are being split apart. And they also, they also talk about the fact that the residency restrictions did not increase public safety. So that's so important for people to understand. And I know that there's like this knee-jerk reaction, oh my gosh, this person's a sex offender, and please stay away from me, or they might, you know, run the other direction. But the fact is, I think people need to get beyond the label, because that's not who that person is necessarily. And, you know, by the way, we had to sue the California Department of Justice because one of the things that they were not putting on people's Megan's Law profile was the year of their um, conviction. Mm -hmm. Okay? So there was no way to tell that they were convicted 30 years ago. 
And by the way, at the time that we sued them, it was the older the conviction, the less likely the year was going to be there. So we had the oldest convictions that there was no information. And, and that's a valid point too. If somebody's lived a law-abiding life for 30 plus years, my goodness, don't they get a second chance at life? Well, and you know, 60 and 70 year olds are all, you know, are, are, are statistically less likely to commit all sorts of crimes, especially these crimes. Absolutely. And there's a, the world expert when it comes to rates of reoffense, by the way, is from Canada. His name is Dr. Carl Hansen. And Dr. Carl Hansen said exactly what you said. And he's been studying this topic for decades, by the way. And he's basically determined that no matter what sex offense somebody has committed and been convicted of, the fact is, if they have not reoffended, in 17 years, this is in the community, not in prison. Right, of course. But if they've been in the community for 17 years and they have not reoffended, they are unlikely to reoffend. They're I mean, no no more likely than a comparable person, right? Well, you must have read the report. Yes. Uh, I've I've read um yeah I've read so, similar thing maybe I've maybe I've read stories about it, um and so the final question and this is not a legal question, but I have to think that this is often very difficult and thankless work and probably gets you some negative pushback from time to time. I mean, is that something you, you could uh, you could address briefly? <laughs> sure. I have people who want to talk to me because of the work that I do, people who shun me because of the work that I do, and I think that reflects back upon them and not on me. I know that the reason why I'm doing the work, and I do ask myself, Occasionally, what would Atticus do? Uh, referring mm -hmm. back to Atticus Finch, a fictional character, in a book and a movie, um, and that's what keeps me going. Right. Somebody needs to do it. When I first said, cried out and said, "This is wrong. What's happening to people on the registry?" Quite frankly, I didn't think I was going to be in the front. And um, I'm an attorney, and before that, I was a newspaper reporter. So I thought, yeah, I could file a lawsuit or I could write a press release thinking somebody else was going to be the front person. But it turned out there was nobody else there. Mm -hmm. So it became me. And uh, I do sometimes uh, feel like a one-armed wallpaper hanger um, and doing the, <laughs> all the many things that I do. But quite frankly, you know, we have a board of directors. Um, we've got five attorneys on our board of directors, by the way, including me. Um, we have we have PhD psychologists. You know, we have people who really care about this issue. And so it's not just... It's not my personal decision whether or not we file a lawsuit. The board makes the decisions. They set the policy. They're like, okay, we we got you know we focused on presence restrictions. We got rid of presence restrictions. Okay, let's do now. Let's do presence restrictions. In the meantime, every once in a while, some ugly thing happens that we have to address. And I'll give you a quick example, which is Halloween restrictions. Okay, so at, at there were two cities and CDCR who were basically telling every registrant under their control that they were going to have to put a sign on their the residence for Halloween basically saying I am a sex offender mm -hmm. okay well we all know what happens on Halloween mischief and right. people and sometimes it's more than mischief sometimes people are shooting guns some people are whatever they're doing um, in Detroit I, I, they used to have an annual arson festival <laughs> so there are many ways to celebrate Halloween yes and, and to require somebody to brand themselves as a sex offender on Halloween we believed was extremely dangerous fortunately there are only two cities and then 
CDCR that was requiring this. And so the fact is, we filed a lawsuit. That was our very first lawsuit. You don't have the option of just turning out the light and not answering the door? <laughs> no, not at all. And, and, and in fact, in some locations, you have to be at home on Halloween. These are people on parole, not people who are not. So it was the city of Simi Valley, and the city of Simi Valley basically said that every sex offender in their city was going to have to put a sign on their door. And we thought that was wrong, so we filed a lawsuit. And we also uh, requested a temporary restraining order. And it was a very nervous time because we didn't have that much advance notice. We only had about a month before, from the time the city passed the ordinance to Halloween. And of course, we had to get the lawsuit filed, the TRO application filed. A lot of things had to happen in a short amount of time. And then we sat there. And the judge didn't, in, in federal court, by the way, and the judge did not issue a decision right away. And we thought that was going to be bad news. <laughs> But the fact is, I think we had a very wise judge, um, and on the afternoon of October 29th, he granted our TRO, and he basically told the city they could not require the signs to be posted on the front door. So uh, we felt like we dodged that bullet. And by the way, the advice I gave to the registrants in the city of Simi Valley prior to the TRO being granted, I told them to leave town. Okay, because if you're not for their safety. Yes, for their own safety, because the fact is that somebody who's on the sex offender registry also cannot possess a firearm. Mm -hmm. So if somebody were to shoot into your house, you could not protect yourself or your family. And right. I just said, it's better, it, it's just better not to be home on, on that day. By the way, Simi Valley repeated their mistake even yeah. after TRO was granted. And after the TRO was granted, the case got settled. But they repeated their mistake five years later. So when you're talking about your fighting, you know, eventually 31 to maybe eventually 50 of, say, these residency lawsuits, do you ever get to sort of a point in a trial after a trial, we're talking about attorney's fees or this and that, where you get some idea about how much public money is being spent fighting you on an ongoing basis? I wish I could say it was millions, but it's not. It's less than that. But the fact is, however, whatever the amount is, the fact is they're wasting their taxpayers' dollars. And it's really by a group of people elected to the city council who are afraid. And mm -hmm. they're afraid that if they do the right thing, if they do what the Taylor case tells them to do, that in fact they won't get reelected. You know, you, you mentioned that, you know, you sort of got into this and realized that you were largely alone and then you kind of started the organization. People, you know, different kinds, you know, legal, psychological, you know, people involved in corrections issues have kind of flocked you. Are you guys becoming part of a nationwide movement? Are other groups are there other groups around the country doing similar work? And if so, any any particular group or person you might mention? When we started out seven years ago, we were an affiliate of a national organization and we declared ourselves autonomous about three years ago. And we in fact consider ourselves to be a national organization now. We just had a conference in Los Angeles in June and quite frankly we had members people from 14 different states attend our, our conference. Oh, so you guys are the, why, why was the, the, what was the other organization and um, why was there a break, if you don't mind me asking? Sure. Um, they actually changed their name, but they used to be the National Reform Sex Offender Laws Organization. And the fact is that they share information, but they don't pursue lawsuits. They don't lobby. They're an information sharing organization and mm -hmm. we wanted to do something different. 
and so we are doing something different now and uh, we haven't filed a lawsuit outside the state of California yet but we in fact are looking at a couple of different lawsuits outside of the state. Any, any, any you can tell me about locations or types of suits? Well, one of them involves Washington State, and in Washington State, they already have a tiered registry there, and the curious thing I've been told, and we're just starting to research, so I don't have a final answer here, but I've been told by people on the registry in Washington State that the tier one, which is their lowest tier, just like what's going to be our lowest tier when the, the, our new tiered registry law goes into effect, basically, because of a quirk in their state law, they will never be able to vote for the rest of their lives. Whereas people on tier two, who are supposedly more dangerous than tier one, they get the chance to vote. Wow, I bet you run into a lot of, you, you, you get some kind of uh, change, some, what you see as maybe a reform, and then you run into some obscure little section of state law that gets implicated some other way. There are unfortunately all kinds of those things going on. And um, we really have to change the mindset of, of people. And, and Malcolm, we're working toward a tipping point in the organization. So we'd say we have three pillars of our foundation. One of them's education, one of them's legislation, and the third one is litigation. And we're pursuing all three at the same time. So education, that's one reason I'm being interviewed today. We, you know, I talk to the media, uh, we have monthly meetings of members of our community around the state of California. Uh, sometimes we even do it on the phone so that we can have people outside the state join us as well. We have a monthly meeting, three hours, and we talk about updates. And by the way, we urge people to stay compliant. I hope people understand that. We are urging our members of our community to stay compliant and not to reoffend. And somebody must be listening because the reoffense rate is extremely low. And this is one of the things people don't understand either. According to CDCR, not a friend of people on the registry, the rate of reoffense while on parole is less than 1%. So that would be a good CLE question because so few people know that. And I won't even tell you exactly what it is because then they hear that other number, which is less than 1%, but then they hear that as, as a different number. But according to CDCR, in study after study, they do this annual report, it's less than 1% while on parole. And, and people think, oh my gosh. And the other thing is that the registry itself gives people a false sense of security, mm -hmm. okay? They think if only I keep my children away from people who are on the registry, my children will be safe. Mm -hmm. Nonsense, okay? Most of the people who commit a sex offense are not on the registry. And then you ask, well, who are they? They're family members, they're teachers, coaches, members of the clergy. We see the headlines every day, right? And the, so the, the disservice the registry does, it just has parents looking in one direction for there's the danger and not looking in all the other directions. Well, and I've been on the registry too, and if you, you know, and it doesn't matter where you live, it seems, if you put in your address, you're surrounded by people who are on the registry. There's just sort of too many of them to, to sort of get, you know, concerned about one of them because there's several within a few blocks of you. It's practically impossible to move. <laughs> Even if you anywhere. live in a very nice neighborhood. <laughs> uh, yes, and we actually have wealthy people who are on the registry. Thankfully, because they contribute to, to our organization. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of an equal opportunity um, offense, and it, it affects people on every socioeconomic level. So we also have parents, whoops, we also have parents of young people on the registry who come from wealthy families, and they have no idea what their kids are doing in their bedroom. And what I'm talking about is taking nude selfies, right? 
it seems kind of harmless until you find out that if your child takes a nude selfie, they've just created child pornography, and then heaven forbid they send it to anybody because then they've just distributed child pornography. Right. Well, Janice Bellucci, uh, thank you very much for being on Courts and Capital. Thank you, Malcolm. And that brings us to the end of episode two of Courts and Capital. I'd like to thank attorney Janice Bellucci for coming in during what was a very busy week in which she had to appear in courtrooms in multiple cities. Also, a big thank you to the Daily Journal's own Nick Perez for production help. Please keep an eye out for future episodes on iTunes, iOS devices, and on the Daily Journal website. Listeners can also earn one hour of CLE credit by filling out a short true-false questionnaire at the Daily Journal website. For Courts and Capital, I'm your host, Malcolm McLaughlin. I'd also like to thank electronic artist Christian Bjorklund for the use of his song Hallen for our theme music. Uh-huh.